Welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show exploring the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I am just so lucky to be joined with that sorcerer of software, the one, the only, Mr. Michael Dominic. You just sound so much better than Chris. Oh, that's right, I do. I'm so flattered. You sound pretty good today, too. Thanks, sir. What planet do you find yourself on? Uh, well, the swamps of Riverview, Florida, as usual. Me and Jar Jar. Yeah, you guys are just best buds down there, it seems like. Just best buds? You let them, you let them play in your pool, you're hanging out, you're smoking cigars together. It's a wild scene. That's right, that's right. Well, thank you for having me here with you today, Mike. Chris is still away, but that can't stop us. There's, there's code to talk about. Can't stop the code. Heck no. Well, maybe maybe you can, though. We've got some feedback to start off the show. It starts off pretty strong. Yeah, they're, they're, they're coming in pretty hot here. So uh, Joe writes in, and I'm going to read it, but first I'd like to summarize it. Joe would like to know what the hell's wrong with me. I'm going to, I haven't, haven't really read this yet, but uh, I want to know too. So Joe says, blah, I'm not sure I get that part. Why.net? It's a dead end. It really doesn't have support on any other systems. Yes, technically it's had, it has had Zimian. I think he means Xamarin, but let's <laughs> right. be realistic. There's no good front end for Linux. Not true anymore, but we'll get to it. I have known about Qt for a long time. Uh, back when he did more C++ programming, I looked at various ways to do cross-platform development. He avoids Qt, he says, because of the license, and now in uh, C++ he's using WX widgets, which actually a few other people have recommended, and I'll talk about it in a minute. Um, nowadays, he's a Java programmer, and uh, yeah, I'm summarizing this a little long, but his, he says uh, JavaScript looks like a spaghetti nightmare from the 70s. <laughs> I can't disagree. Well... The man does not mince words. You have to. I appreciate that. Him. Yeah, props, Joe. Yeah. Props. And I mean, that's that's right. I mean, it's it does look like that. Yeah, it really does. So so point by point, right? Uh, oh, and he says go Pats for the football season, which really undercuts the rest of your email. Just don't mention that you're a Patriots fan. Just, <laughs> uh, so simple answer, right? The product I am launching next week, yay, and Linux, but mostly Windows. So .NET's a pretty natural choice. Uh, the aerospace industry tends to love them some Microsoft. Right, yeah. I mean, if you already have support for the runtime there. Um, you yeah. reintroduce your product real quick there. You cut out for a split second. So it's launching next week, so I can't say anything about it yet. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. We just missed a tiny bit. But you said it, it mostly runs on, you're mostly targeting Windows? Yeah, yeah. I think like about like 9 out of 10 installs are going to be Windows. Got it. Okay, interesting. In terms of Qt, yeah, that was a... Wes, have you have you taken a look at Qt in a while? No, you know, honestly, it's been a couple of years since I've really, you know, gotten down and ready and had a new project that I was playing with it. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at it recently, and I just got tripped up on the licensing. Um, that seems especially pretty... complicated if you're, not, if you're not just playing solely in the open source world. Yeah, it is. It, the... Um... Yeah, the, and we had an episode on the whole LGPL, and then it being by component was was pretty confusing. Um, so does that mean so that yeah. you've kind of just uh, is that written off for you now? Not a path you're going to yeah, be it's written off for now. Got yeah. it. Yeah, just yeah. exploring other ways to accomplish the same thing. Yeah, the the, the pricing to be compliant with the license was going to be too uh, just way too high. So yeah, I you know everybody loves Java. I'm not trying to knock Java. 
I know Wes is a big Java fan, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I got I, I have nothing against Java. I don't want to build um, certain things with it, but as a <laughs> uh, as a building block to build big systems, it's it, it's come a long way. I like I like the newer Javas as well. When you have you know a little more functional influence, it's a much more pleasant language. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate the email, Joe. And uh, about Wes, unless you have anything else here on WX widgets, I did look at it. I don't. I have not used it yet, so I can't really speak to. No, I can't either. Although I guess I've seen a lot of things written in it. I don't know if they were beautiful, but if you just want to go for functional, seems like it's certainly up to the task. There you go. So next on the docket, a similar uh, comment I got on YouTube and uh, Twitter quite a lot was, "Why not Tornado FX? Are you familiar with this at all?" Wes? Oh no, what's Tornado FX? So this is actually keeping in line with Joe's uh, Java mention. This is a version of JavaFX that uses Kotlin. Oh, okay. Well, that that sounds pretty nice, actually. It, yeah, it it does look pretty uh pretty sexy if I say so myself. But it's a little too new for me to want to ship in a uh, production project. Right. I mean, Kotlin itself isn't really that old yet, and uh, yeah, yeah. It seems like this project it's moving pretty quickly, uh, but. Oh, yeah, as they say here, not yet compatible with Java 9 or 10 yet. So, yeah, clearly there's some stabilizing to yeah. do. Yeah, there's some weirdness with Kotlin and different Java versions, as I've learned the hard way. Really? I, that's actually, I had not heard that complaint before. I've almost always heard pleasant things about Kotlin so far. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's currently true, but when Java 10 came out, it was actually uh, not compatible with Kotlin. Oh, yeah. Okay. I suppose there's always bound to be bound to be a little leg when you have big changes underneath. Yeah, exactly. We can't, it can't be easy, Mike. This is software. What are you what are you thinking over there? What? I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just, you know, I'm just lost. Yeah, that's right. Well, um so last I heard you had done something terrible to your phone. Is that is it still in a state of disrepair? Uh, it is still in a state of disrepair because I refuse to pay the exorbitant two hundred and something dollars Apple wants for a screen replacement. Oh, ouch! Yeah, that's a that'll burn a hole in your pocket yeah. real quick. So, speaking of losing money, Fortnite fifteen million downloads by sidestepping the Google Play Store on Android. Wow, woo wee! That is, I'm impressed. That's got it. I'm impressed. That's got to be significant. Uh, Significant revenue revenue loss there for Google. Uh, right. I mean, yeah, they were they're pulling a pretty big cut from you. Presume a lot of those would have come through them otherwise. Yeah, and with a thirty percent every in app purchase. Do you uh, would this work? Would this strategy work for a less popular application? I mean, obviously Fortnite has a ton of momentum in mind. Sure, people already know about it. They don't need discoverability really on the store, and they just you know, and they're already motivated to download it. Yeah, would this work for something like? Could you go around the Play Store and have any kind of this success? No, no, no. And and actually, we should mention that uh, for a few days there, Fortnite actually was the victim of a man in the middle attack. Oh yeah, where, where uh, yeah, people were getting infected APKs and Google very publicly pointed it out in <laughs> right but like, this is what happens mad. when you uh, skip on right. all our niceties circumvent the app store yeah. <laughs> it's certainly interesting though yeah i mean the, that that 30 percent cut feels you know very outmoded it, it really kind of feels pretty steep it, it it really is yeah and it's like it adds to the weird walled garden effect and it doesn't you know it's useful what they do but 30 percent you know like a standard a more standard listing fee seems like it would just encourage yeah. more and better apps on the ecosystem anyway. One more financially sustainable for the developers, even if they are just doing 
advertising or support. Yeah, exactly. So tell me about Loom. This is your thing. Yeah, oh yeah. So let's just move right along because we've got a you know this show. It's got to it's got to move. So Mike, we were just talking about JavaScript, right? And well, it's funny because a lot of people liked Node because of the concurrency story, right? It could it could do you know ten ten x connections. It could scale those connections and have the event loop built right in. But the downside is, of course, you've got asynchronous JavaScript, which can just be a big old mess of callbacks, right? I don't know. What's your, where do you fall? What do you usually do when you need, you know, concurrent software? What's your tool set? Oh, it depends on the language. I mean, if I'm in .NET or really anything else that supports async away, I tend to lean on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in JavaScript, I'm I'm living in callback hell. Okay, that, that makes sense. Um, how do you like async await over in the .NET world? I like it. It. So it's a really it's a really big my opinion it's a huge abstraction mm, mm-hmm. and while ninety nine percent of the time I think it's great it saves me from you know just having like really ugly looking code that's hard to maintain every once in a while you get like weird edge cases where you accidentally lock something up or things don't finish the way you think they're gonna finish oh yeah you get in some some bad concurrency states and everything goes to hell. Yeah, because what it's doing is every time you you type the await keyword and it compiles, it's actually generating a bunch of code behind that, and it's it's so it's not like uh, it's not removing the need for crazy callbacks and concurrent. Right, it just the compiler like makes you a state machine to do all of that for you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, we can d- dive into it later if we want, but uh, Clojure's got this a similar mechanism. Theirs is just shipped as a macro, the Go macro, which will implement basically the same idea. Um, so that's okay. so that's one way of people that people deal with it, right? So we have you've got like bare callbacks. Um, promises are being seen a lot these days, which sort of reifies it up one level at least. Then you've got something you can you know hold in a variable. You can interact with. Uh, it's a little more than just waiting, knowing it's sitting in a queue to be executed somewhere in the runtime. And then you've got compiler options where the compiler or a macro or something can help you manage some of the complexity. But we've got a link in the show notes for a great article to. to uh, that talks about what color is your function and that that asynchronicity can leak throughout your code base and anytime you touch it you sort of start to feel it project loom is trying to solve some of that by going one level deeper and trying to fix it at the runtime so one thing that uh, you know a number of languages that are thought of as good for concurrency like go or erlang well They've got some lightweight threads, and that's something Java, there was, there was proposals way back in the day, but it really has never been there, and we just have to rely on either async callbacks in Java or regular old blocking calls. Obviously, that has problems scaling. Enter Project Loom and Fibers, which are lightweight threads you can use as if they were just OS threads. The JVM will manage running those on actual physical cores on OS threads for you. Interesting. So, have you have you been able to use this yet? Uh, I've played with. Uh, so, it looks like the there was previously a project called Quasar, which did this already, but basically looked at the generated bytecode and did some some introspecting and changing and modifying of it on the fly to achieve the same effect because it wasn't supported upstream in the JVM. That the person behind that project is now working for Oracle and working on Project Loom as well with with some other researchers, of course. So I've used that earlier incarnation a little bit, not in production or anything too serious, um, but it was neat. And I have played with uh, 
well, I've mostly played with Elixir, but I've used the Beam VM, uh, which has similar lightweight threads. They call them processes over there. Interesting, interesting. And I, I remind me, I, I don't want to let you off the hook because you mentioned Elixir, so I, I have to hear the pitch for Elixir. But what I didn't understand from reading this was it looks like it's still calling OS uh, threads on the underneath it all, right? Uh, yes, it Isn't does. That a f- okay, uh, but it can implement. It's basically taking the um, like the parking that happens in that state machine um, we were talking about for like async await. Right, uh, right. It's taking that and being able to do it at the runtime layer. So once you're running on okay. these lightweight threads, it can figure out that you're blocked waiting for some I/O, and it'll just park that. It'll schedule it off a real OS thread, and then once that input's received, it can put it back on the thread. And they, mostly, it's going to be built, I think, just on top of the regular fork join. So. Uh, they've just got the scheduling layer on top. Layer on top, right. And theoretically, being the JVM, you would avoid any weird issues with like different threadings on different OSs being... Yeah, you would hope that the VM would, would have that abstraction there for you. Right. Um, Looks to scan at Windows 10, because yeah, yeah. thanks, guys. Yeah, exactly. So I, this was just appealing for me because it seems like a pretty clean... If you If they get it right, it seems like a nice thing to be able to build upon, because instead of having to, you know, have either just... Like you can do a thread. Let's say you're making some long-running HTTP request. If you put each of those on the thread, well, that'll just only scale so far, and that's why a lot of people have been driven to asynchronous APIs in the first place. With this, you get the both best of both worlds. You can write your code. It looks like it's just regular blocking code, and in some sense, it is. It's just managed below that layer for you, so you can have a green thread per HTTP request, and you don't have to care about it, and it'll just handle all the scheduling so that they execute in the order they need to. Wow, we are, we are living in a world of asynchronous abstraction glory. <laughs> I know, right? So uh, this is probably a long way off than to actually see it in production and a production JVM on your servers, but I'm glad that it's happening because, you know, the JVM, it just remains so popular. So many places use it. It's, it is a powerhouse. It's got some of the best just-in-time compiling out there. So many man-hours have been used for it. Not everyone loves it. It's kind of weird, especially when you're dealing with, I don't know, weird class path construction or the way it handles certificates, which I just absolutely deplore. Yeah. Either way, it's fast, and it's it's been battle-tested over a lot of years. So if we can get even better concurrency primitives on it, there's a huge amount of programmers that stand to, stand to benefit. Oh, yeah. No, I could, yeah, for large-scale Java-based applications, that would be pretty significant. Absolutely. So you mentioned Elixir. So do, do so elevator pitch me. What are you doing in Elixir, and and why Elixir? Uh, I haven't. I've made a couple toy projects. I haven't done anything too serious. Uh, I'd always just been curious about the Beam VM. Uh, it has an interesting history coming out of the telecommunications industry and Ericsson in particular, and it's been widely respected in like VoIP circles for running a lot of those hardware appliances and software projects and being scalable and low latency. Elixir is, well, Erlang came out, it, the first version was actually just in Prolog, so it has weird Prolog-like syntax, which is not everyone's piece of cake. I can understand that. Elixir is a new language that sits on top of the, the Beam VM, inherits a lot from Erlang, is inspired by Erlang, but it comes with a friendlier more not they call it ruby inspired it's not really like ruby but it's got the basic sort of syntax you know if you squint at the screen it looks like ruby right. and it's a lot more traditional it's also just a little more um 
Erlang's great, but it's, you know, it was, it came out of the 80, late 80s, 90s, that, that era is when it first saw a lot of its growth. So, you know, it's just a bit dated. Elixir has a lot more niceties, you know, more like a literal syntax for different sort of data structures, more, more just sugar, I would say. Okay, so it, it's in a lot of ways like a modernized. Yeah, yep, I, w- I would say so. There's obviously, you know, there's anyone who loves both those languages would have a, that would be should be shouting at us right now because there's a lot more intricacies for that. And there's a large right. community with a lot of history that I can't capture in a 10 second spiel. But yes, they share a lot of that same background and they fit really well for those same things. So famously, like uh, Erlang runs the WhatsApp servers and it, it works really well for that because you can get lots oh, wow. of okay. con- lots of simultaneous connections all to just like, yeah, they have a weird stack. It's FreeBSD and Erlang. So both kind of secret weapons, I guess. And they have big honking. always those BSD guys at the show, right? At the trade show. <laughs> there has to be, yeah. And it's, you know, it's part of the community. And so they got these big honking BSD servers running Erlang and just getting millions of concurrent connections to them. And, you know, they're not necessarily like, the beam is not as fast uh, for computational things as the JVM is. But if you're just doing like message passaging, some web sockets maybe is a, is a use this sees a lot where you want low latency, fast response, and just to shove some signaling data through rather than like a big pipe of real data, Beam's your guy. Very cool. Yeah, I was actually just at a, a dev meetup, and there was like like three guys just like hunched over their MacBooks. Yes, they were MacBooks. <laughs> and um, just, so I, so I just walked up and said, hey, what are you guys working on? Oh, we're doing something in Elixir. I said, what? Why? You know, because you, you go to these things... 90% of the people that are, like, making websites or yeah. iOS apps, right? So totally. like, okay. Yeah, none of it's, like, crazy, it's just run-of-the-mill software projects. Yeah, run-of-the-mill normal stuff. But, yeah, I, I keep hearing about it, and I keep trying to figure out what the actual use case. I've heard the view over IP thing before. Um, I didn't know about what's out there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing about Elixir, which maybe makes it a good story for people just getting into it, is it does have a lot of those nice primitives. It's got a good functional programming story, immutabilities there. It also has great documentation. And the creator of the language, uh, I think his name's Jose Valim, he's just, he's awesome. He does, he goes to conferences, does all kinds of good spieling about it. And the documentation, it's geared towards new users. It's easy to get started. It's probably already in, you know, it's in Brew. It's in a lot of package managers. You get a nice little interactive REPL to play with it. It's it's just super fun to get started with. I haven't, yeah, I haven't used it for anything serious, but it was so easy to get started. I was like, there's really no excuse. I'll try to do a couple things. And it is fun to be thinking in that concurrency style where you can just make a process for whatever. You have processes to store data. You have processes to make HTTP requests. You have processes to do basically anything you want. And that Erlang VM uh, in its 80s C glory handles all the scheduling. That's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. The other nice part, too, is you get uh, access to OTP, which is the open telephony system um, or protocol project, uh, whatever the P stands for. That is a lot of the stuff that gets bundled with Erlang. It's, it's its own project, but has historically been developed with Erlang, and it adds a lot of sort of the redundancy, fault tolerance, supervision structure that Erlang is known for. Because, you know, when you're running a big telco switch, you can't really tolerate very much downtime. So it's good at things like hot reloading, and it's really good at, instead of having to deal with all the error paths, you just sort of set up a tree of supervised actors, and you can configure things like a restart, how many retries should I do before I fail up to the next level, and how do I restart, or, you know, do I have things I need to do before I run or after I run, and all of that's in that library for you so you can 
it really has like primitives to build a distributed system in a reliable way baked right into the runtime and the popular libraries. Very cool. But Elixir's not your true true love, is it? No, no, it wouldn't be. That's still closure, of course. Oh, lay it on me, man. Um, you know, I've, I've just been really enjoying it. There's been some good developments going on since the last time we talked about it. In particular, uh, the Clojure community, I mean, lots of communities are good. It's a little bit, it's small enough that it can have a character of its own. Now, of course, there's still different pieces of it and all kinds of unique personalities that are involved, but it's a unique set of, Clojure's not often a first programmer's language. It's sort of a grumpy old programmer's language who got sick of mm. fighting Java or JavaScript or whatever else and wanted something better. So it can be tough, a bit tough for, for people to pick up for the first language, but as a result, most of the people doing it are experienced senior programmers. So you get a lot of, there's a lot of maturity in the community, and while they have a lot of respect for academia, and one of the things they love to do as a community is pull great ideas from papers from the 70s and then implement them, but they do that with an air to being pragmatic because they all work at day jobs programming and just want to get stuff done and build reliable systems. So it's like dot, dot .net, but stable. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. It even runs on .net. There's a, there's a version that compiles to uh, of course the CLR. Yeah, it's not much used compared to the JVM or JS, um, but it is, there is a project to get it to run well on Mono, and then you can hook it up to Unity, which is kind of neat. That would be the most hardcore game on Humble Bundle. I know, so right? So you, you, you mentioned JS. Now, is that JS via, like, transpiling to JavaScript, or is it WebAssembly? Yes, it is uh, Clojure Script, which is a project written in Clojure that is a compiler that compiles a Clojure-like dialect. They're, like, 98% the same to JavaScript. Well, that's Clojure Inception there. So it's Clojure Script is written in Clojure, and what Clojure Script does is compiles a dialect of closure? Yes, and then it yeah, it compiles that to JavaScript. All right, let me spin my little thing here to see if I'm awake or not. <laughs> so, okay. So, theoretically, you're writing an app. Again, closure is one that I haven't done anything in, but I've been curious. Sure. You're writing your application. I'm assuming you're writing server software, mm -hmm. and you need some sort of front end because that's life. Yeah, right, yeah. People want to look at your data that you've spent all this time making for them. Shocking. You can't just say, the data's there, I promise. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I a JSON blob for you if you want to send a GET request over here. Does that work? If I really Marketing don't like you, it's going to be XML. Okay, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so then you're right. So is, is your full stack closure? I mean, obviously, you probably have CSS and all that, but... Yeah, that is one of the compelling stories for ClojureScript is you can have full stack and you can share a lot of it because it's it's mostly just all the you know the host primitives that you that are going to end up different. So um, okay. there's now compiler support, so you can have you can you can have a project that has three types of files: a .clj for pure Clojure, a .cljs for ClojureScript, and a .cljc which can be compiled as either. So you can have a bunch of definitions of things, you know, you can have protocols implemented or any kind of abstraction that isn't going to see a direct implementation on top of the host. All of that can be shared in these CLJC files. And then you can just implement the, you know, pull from that big standard library that you've made yourself there from both sides of it. 
Wait, so you can reuse your standard library? Yes. It's your standard library. It's not just... Yeah, right. So you can you can make any right. sort of amount of code as long as... I mean, not all... You know, sometimes you need to have slight differences for the two platforms. But by and large, you can see projects where, like, most of it is written in CLJC, and then they've got a couple, you know, oh, here's a couple of things that we've got to do the threading on the server part, and here's the thing we've got to do the UI part, or... So it's, it's pretty flexible in that regard. And you can see a lot of, you know, they have the same data structures. And so there's several neat projects that have libraries for both the back end and the front end. And it'll handle, you know, does does all the serialization and stuff for you. There's already several formats, one that's very fast, one that's very human readable uh, to, to handle closure data center data structures back and forth. So you can have one of them, I think it's Sente. Uh, it's like a WebSocket abstraction. You can just have a WebSocket between your server and your client and just throw closure data structures across it and pick it up. And you don't have to, there's no, you know, no mapping to different objects and different object systems between the languages there's a there's a low impedance and it works really nicely so is there like a a popular like development framework like where obviously python has like django ruby has rails no that's a good question um that's another thing elixir uh, has going forward is they've got phoenix which is a popular framework which is right compared to compared to to rails Clojure, not really. That that is one aspect of its community that's a bit odd. Is it's almost like the Unix philosophy. There's a lot of composition, uh, so they really pre- tend to prefer libraries from frameworks. And I think again, this stems out of the more mature community base because Rails is great, especially if you're starting a new project. You don't really know where it's going to go. Maybe you're not that you haven't done doing it that long. Rails handles all the things that have to get handled, but you don't necessarily care about right away. You know, I don't really care how the CSRF protection works. Maybe later I need to customize it when I start doing that part of my project, but just throw it in there for me. Clojure's much more, they've got a lot of components that you can use to build a system of any kind that you want. Now, there are some standard defaults out there, and there's a couple sort of like project templates uh, you know, you can use to set it up and just sort of easily add like, oh, here, I'm going to do a full stack one, or this is just going to be a server, or this is a node project, and they'll just lay that all out for you, but you're still going to see all the pieces. Oh, yeah, so ClojureScript also targets node, which is neat. Well, I mean, everything targets node now, right? I, mean, yeah. I can't get up and throw a rock without hitting a node developer <laughs> these days. No, you cannot. That is so, so that's interesting, though. So theoretically, so it's on... I mean, this is probably a terrible comparison. Closure script would be like TypeScript. You could theoretically use the Node framework and just like the language of your choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That language... absolutely. So I've uh, I've been working. I should actually pick it up again. I stopped working on it, but I was rec- working on a, a Alexa app using the the JS APIs, but using Closure script. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so then that'll later just probably go run on a Lambda running on Node, and it'll just just work. And there you go, and you're and you're good. Yeah, and that's been interesting too because I didn't. I've done some Java, but I didn't have a huge Java background when I started learning Clojure, and I've done more JavaScript. So there's a lot of libraries. One thing that is great and makes Clojure pretty easy is that there are direct Clojure libraries for things, but by and large, because the host interrupt is meant to be so good, and it is just really. It's really clear. You can just do all the host things from Clojure, no problem. So you can use any either Java or JavaScript library, pull it right in, and use it just like it was the host language. So you would just have this huge application base of software that's been already written for you, and you can just tie it together. So you could just pull in jars, basically. Yep, yep, absolutely. And then you can, from the, Java, the Clojure script side, you can use NPM. Wow, okay. So... Hey, that actually brings up another great question. So I'm looking at it. We've talked about it, I think, well, 
six months ago, last time you and I talked. Yeah, whenever that was. Yeah, it was like, it feels like 100 years now. I think it might have been 100 years. You're absolutely right. Last century. Ah, nice to see you. Yeah, somehow the fashions come back around, so we still look great. I told you, we got to keep all our clothes. Now we sell them to hipsters. They're yeah. vintage. And these sweet mustaches we've grown. That's right. Top hats are back. Yeah. How how adept does one have to be at Java and kind of like the whole Java ecosystem to successfully start with closure? Is it a prerequisite or can you just kind of get, get on without? I would say you don't. Need, really have to start with it. You're going to have to learn some things as you go along. Like certainly you have to install a JVM onto your system. So that's sure, probably sure. the most unpleasant part. The, actually, recently in the past six months or so, the the starting story for Clojure has gotten a lot better because before Clojure was just a jar, you know, like you just, it was a jar that you downloaded and that was the Clojure oh, language wow. and runtime and standard library all in that jar. Uh, so, you know, here's a command you can run where you run Java dash jar and you start up a REPL and Right. So now they've done a much better job of, one, having that. They have a standalone program now that has an interface you can use, and you just run it, and it'll open up a REPL for you. It can also handle, instead of having to use Maven or some of the other Clojure-centric build tooling that's out there, which which is all very good and very useful, um, this little tool can do that all for you as well. And it can pull from Git depth. So you can put in Maven coordinates, or you can put in like a Git SHA or a Git tag, and it'll pull all that down and handle all that for you. So that makes it really easy if you just want to like go grab a couple libraries, open a REPL, and start hacking on it. That said, um, host, you know, probably the for the first, for a lot of the learning, uh, you really don't need it that much. Probably when you do, you'll you'll eventually pull in some Java libraries or maybe work with some of the Java base API for I/O or other things. So you'll start learning some of the Java things, but if you have a even a a tiny understanding of object orientation, uh, I'd done way more Python than I'd done Java before I started playing with Clojure, and that was more than enough. You know, it's like okay, you get what's happening here. Here, you know, here's a method call. Here's why that works. Here's what the factory is. That's all you need. You don't have to get into any of the complicated, more obscure parts of Java, unless you want to. Okay, so yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So it's. You, so you're still in love with it? Still everything? Any gripes? Um, hmm, gripes? Not a ton. Um, they've been making progress in a lot of the the areas people commonly gripe about. So one one thing that's been hard over the years is error messages because it's a hosted language and it tries to not hide that it's a hosted language. So you end up oftentimes with like really long stack traces that go through your code and then into the Clojure library code and then into JVM code and, and just this big stack trace. And if you're not used to Java or stack traces, that could be hard to read. Now, I think if you're good at scientific debugging and you already are the sort of developer who, you know, there's like there's one style where you kind of like have, it's like you're bowling with uh, with guards on the on the lanes where you're sort of bouncing off the compiler right. and bouncing off just running into things. But if you already have a really good a good understanding of what you're doing as you're writing your program and know just like, you know, you have small commits where you know what you changed and in what areas, I've never found it to be that big of a deal. That said, they are putting in a lot of work in that area and it's rapidly getting better. So I'm, I'm hoping to see that improve for people that it really upsets. So basically, I would completely fail immediately because, uh, you know, I, my commits, I need at least 10 files, a couple thousand lines. Uh, well, I mean, as long as you're as long as you're aware of what you're changing. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. Yeah. I, oh, man, you're you're triggering me here. I, there's been so many people I've worked with over the years that are just like either they didn't 
get Git or they just hated the idea of it because they refused to use it in any sane way. Here's our code reader tip of the week. Uh, don't ever type a git commit tack A. Just don't <laughs> yeah. do it. It's bad. You're going to regret it. You're, you're probably going to have a rough code review. <laughs> yeah, you have the staging area for a reason. Like, you should probably use it. You should, you should like, use it. And it's unlikely you changed six, six files and only did one thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I will say Clojure is worth learning if, if people are interested in a lot of the, the sort of non if, if you take out the statically typed world of functional programming if you're just interested in like a data oriented functional thing uh, to compare it to like go or c or some of the more low level languages there's some aspects of programming maybe you're implementing tcp or some other network protocol it feels like a state machine it feels like a little mechanical thing that you're, you're cranking on the side or the cpu is cranking it and it goes and you're processing low level bits you're, you're accessing memory you're sending little bits of data here and there and then there's like the bigger systems not necessarily even bigger but there's the the higher level the more like up towards the human scale of things that are information processing systems that are they're really dealing with data rich data complex data that's the side of things that i'd say clojure really excels at uh you might still reach down to the the host language. You know, there's a lot of libraries out there that have part of them implemented in Java for like the really hot, tight inner loops. And then you just use Clojure on top of that to sort of orchestrate it in a way where you don't have to have all the overhead of, you know, all the types of Java and all the boilerplate of Java and just the, you get a nice immutable standard library. That sounds really cool. And, and yeah, the ability to pull in any jar effectively seems awesome yeah so you can just kind of leverage it and it's you know it's just going to always be more concise than java and so you have less code to look at the other aspect i've really enjoyed and have been consistently surprised by is so there's the biggest outlier for clojure is that it's a dynamic language and it's not statically typed oh i didn't know i thought it was static okay yeah and so that's that's one thing that people are constantly kind of tripped up by because it's a weird part of the if you imagine like a big grid you know there's sort of like dynamically typed and mutable languages like Python and Ruby, and then there's stuff that is, you know, Haskell on the other corner up here that is immutable and statically typed, and Clojure is immutable and dynamically typed, and there's just not that many other languages that sit where it sits, and it's its own unique experience. Yeah, that is interesting. That is, so, immutable, immutable and dynamically typed, I'm trying to think of what other languages like that. I think, I mean, Elixir is pretty close to it in that respect, um... Maybe some other like weird lisps or a lispy. Scheme. I was thinking like, yeah. Yeah, but there's not that many. And I think, well, like I have nothing against static typing or Haskell, which I find fascinating. Um, if, you, if you can and want to use Haskell, like do it. But I think people take their experience of either like Java being too verbose, but like they'd still like the, the types there or Python and Ruby growing to be like a big noodly mess where you have no idea what's happening and the Ruby's just sending messages all over the place and you have no idea and it's all happening at runtime and who the heck knows what's happening in this project anymore. Monkey patching. <laughs> right, yeah, monkey Bad, patching do everywhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and it's not to say that is immune from those problems, but the combination of being really concise and the immutability means it's just not as big of a deal. Uh, you know, you can have something that would be like four or five files in Java be probably just like one closure file of 100, 200. It depends on you know exactly what you're doing, but it's just so much more concise. You can look at the function and be like, oh, yeah, here we go. I can understand what's happening because there's less of it. and It's not in three different classes. That's super cool. That is like, yeah. And the other the other thing, too, is it embraces 
both data and runtime in a way that I've not seen very many other languages. From the runtime aspect, it's almost as much as uh, like Smalltalk did, where, you know, where Smalltalk has its own sort of crazy oh, don't get me started. running oh, environment. Don't, don't. So it's not quite to that level, but you really feel you know, you're connected to this program. So when you like open up your editor, uh, one people seem to really like is Cursive, which is a built on top of, the, of IntelliJ, basically. So it's familiar to anyone using IntelliJ already. Uh, hooks up into Clojure, but you've get got this running REPL connection all the time. And the way Clojure compiles is by, is a single form at a time. So you can just evaluate any form in your editor at any time and just send it to your real system, sort of hack live against it until you've got it to a point that you like. That is really cool. Yeah, it's a sort of like uh, jacked into the, the computer in a way that you don't often experience. You can see the matrix as long as it's in closure. Yeah, right. It's yeah, it's all it's all S expression, so you have to be down with that. But if you can see past that, um, it is it has ruined me a bit for other languages because it's it's a Lisp, right? And Lisps are strange, um, and their syntax is implemented in data structures. And when you when that like really clicks, and and you start thinking like you know when I see like a let's say like a a function definition in Python. You know, there's the the name of the function and then opening right. parentheses and then a list of the arguments for the function. What is that? What is that? Well, it's nothing, right? It's just syntax. In Clojure, that would be an actual list that you hand to the compiler. That would be an actual list that yeah. I hand to the compiler. So, like, the, the syntax for Clojure is Clojure data structures. Whoa, I think I just had a, a, a mind, mind implosion motive, uh, moment. Yeah, it's crazy. It, so a closure function would not be what I think it would be. That wouldn't look like the way I think it looks, right? Yeah, it depends on what you mean. So it'll be it'll be um, if you're like defining a function closure, it's an opening parentheses and then the 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 word defin, but in in closure it's called a symbol. The symbol defin d e f n, and then a space, and then the name of the function, and then a space, and then a vector, which is a square square bracket, and a list of the parameters that function accepts. But it's not just syntax because it is what the what the compiler sees is an actual list, a data structure that is a list, and then in the first item of that list is a data structure that's a symbol, which is defin, and then it sees another symbol, which is the name of the function, and then it sees an actual vector with more symbols inside of it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so the first... So the compilation's a bit different. So the first stage is... Um, and that is reading, and reading takes the the closure file, and there's actually a it's actually it's its own thing. It's called Eden Extensible Data Notation. It's like JSON, but more Lispy, S expression based, and a little more extensible, which is nice. So it takes an Eden file, reads it, so it gets a big builds a big data structure, and then hands those data structures one structure at a time to the compiler. The compiler emits bytecode, ships it to the JVM, and it runs it. So basically everything all the way down is effectively closure data structures. Yes, exactly. And that's what makes um, the ability to write macros so useful because you already have, like the whole closure standard library is just utility functions to work on the built-in data structures. It's all about data. So you've got all the kinds of things to handle, nested maps and complicated arrangements of vectors. And, you know, there's, there's four comprehensions in there and there's map and filter and reduce and all sorts of stuff. All of that can also be used in macros because when you write a macro, the compiler sees it, takes whatever you've written inside the macro, doesn't evaluate it, and hands it as a data structure to the macro code that you write. And then you can use all of your normal tools to manipulate that, emit more code, and then the compiler compiles that instead. Okay. 
my mind is blown. Yeah, and that's why it's so powerful, and that's why, uh, you know, for like C Sharp, they added async await to the compiler. In Clojure, core async does answers some of the same problems, and it's just a library. Now, there are some limitations that make it, in some cases, worse to do that style, but it means the community didn't have to wait for the language designers to add that. They could do it at any time. Right, you just add your own macros and go from there. Right? Yeah, so. you can grow the language, shape it as you need to. And of course, you want to be... You know, you want to use that with care. It's a lot of power, but when it's appropriate, it's awesome. No, that sounds like it'd be very powerful. Yeah, once once you wrap your head around that everything's a data structure, and if you're not used to, as I'm not used to, like Lispy like languages, um, um, just for the audience, when we say Lispy like, we mean you know descendant from literally Lisp. Yeah, exactly. Um, usually prefix notation, s expressions, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm just looking at some of the stuff on uh, closure.org here. I'm looking at some of the codes and my head is spinning. It's like, it is very, very data centric. Yes, absolutely. Um, here, I can send you a, I'll just post it in the, put it in the top of the doc. Here's a recent data driven routing library that exists out there. There we go. I'll make that a link for you. And so you can just scroll down and see some of the examples. And it is, you know, it is there. It's all data structures all the way down. Ooh, all right. Yeah. Um, so one thing that people come from, like, you know, Scala people or people used to, even just Java's level of, of static typing, there's a little bit of uncertainty. So you do need a little more. And again, I think this goes back to the sort of senior programmer mentality. Certainly it's easy, maybe not easy, but it's, it, it happens all the time. Dynamic languages can be abused. You can make a little soup for yourself. Sure. It helps that Clojure is very function-oriented and... Instead of classes, you have namespaces, and there's already sort of, it's almost like microservices in your code. You know, it, it encourages and stylistically is encouraged by the community to separate concerns and have very clear responsibilities and single immutable item potent functions. So that helps a lot in that regard. And if you just are a more experienced programmer and have a little discipline, you know, you learn how to, you have doc strings and you have good tests and it all kind of just works. Works together. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a look at this just you know, just for thinking in a different way, right? Yeah. Thinking about code as data structures and being more in the Lisp. Um, I spend most of my time working in like C family languages. Yeah, you know, it's, it's that's that's part of it too. It's funny. Um, I think that turns a lot of people off and that's fair. Algol just won. That style of syntax seems to be mostly what we learn and so that's what feels intuitive to us. So it's probably, uh, probably healthy even if you've never intended to build a real project with it, learning some kind of Lisp closure is nice because it does it has so many libraries. It's easy to do a toy project that's actually useful, as compared to maybe something like Racket, which is a little more academic. But go go learn some weird stuff, right? It's nice to learn a an ML family language. Prolog's interesting. Erlang, Lisp, like there's all kinds of crazy languages. Fourth, fourth is a cool, you know, concatenative stack based languages are neat. People still learn Haskell. I remember that used to be like the the hot non C family. Although this is definitely more foreign than Haskell. Yeah. Um. I mean, yes and no. It's definitely more foreign on the surface. I would say uh, Haskell has a lot of deepness to it because it is like just a rich playground for implementing all sorts of ideas from type theory, which is cool. Which is neat. Like they do a lot of cool stuff. Um. One thing I love about Clojure is it just tries to be simple and like simple. There's one of the classic talks in the community is simple, not easy. Uh, and mm. you know, to prefer simplicity, ease is great. It's not that ease is bad, but 
simplicity is, is what helps scale and simplicity is what helps come back and review code and understand what's happening. So once you, there is a, a, you know, a big gap of familiarity, but if you can get across that, like, I don't know if you followed any of the drama uh, from like the Scala side of things, just all the incompatibilities between Scala versions and having to build multiple times and configure SBT to emit for different Scala versions and all of that. It just doesn't happen in Clojure. There's been like one or two breaking changes over the entirety of its 10 year record. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's. It's also so it can be a little unsettling for people, too, because you see a Clojure library and part of it is because of just the stability of the language. And part of it is because a lot of the libraries end up just wrapping like a popular HTTP library wraps the Apache HTTP library from Java. Uh, so you just get these libraries that don't ever really see a one point release, but it's because they were already there's so such a thin little wrapper and layer to make it slightly more palpable to a Clojure programmer that you don't have to worry about it. And it doesn't need that many changes. It just works. That is super cool. Yeah, but very yeah. different. So it just I was turned off at different. first. Yeah, I was like, what is yeah. happening? Well, it's a good exercise, though, for, frankly, myself and the listeners. Break out of your C-sharp, Java, God forbid, JavaScript uh, bubble and give something like Clojure a shot, right? Yeah, just to, taste, just, just to learn. Taste something strange. So where can folks find you and learn more about this crazy data structure, love? Oh, yeah. Uh, you can find me over at Wes Payne on Twitter or check out some of the other JB shows I sometimes appear on. Check out TechSnap this week. It's been tons of fun. We had special guest Martin Wimpress on. So we had we just had a, a riotous time. One of the wimpy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Friend of the network. What about you, Mike? Where can they get more of you besides this here Coder Radio? A Coder.show, right? HTTP colon slash slash Coder.show. That's right. Uh, you can find me at Dumanuko on Twitter and... Uh... Yeah, check out the calendar for the recording schedule. It's going to be weird for a few weeks. Yeah, but don't worry. Nothing can stop Coder Radio. And now with closure. 